0: Twenty five dollars each. Visit LiveNation.com slash concertweek to buy now. That's LiveNation.comslash concertweek to buy now.
3: I'm Katia Adler, host of the Global Story. Over the last twenty-five years I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: From UFOs to ghosts and government cover-ups, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show, the show that never ends. Uh, my name is Matt. And <laughs> my name is Ben. And uh we're back in the room, this uh, scary, dank, dark cave of a room. And we're here to tell you stories, because that's why you're here, right? Scary, dark, dank stories? Yeah, dank old <laughs> bedtime stories. Hopefully you're tucked in bed with your whatever product you use to listen to this. Maybe you're just pretending to listen to this right now, yeah. you're not actually listening to mm-hmm. it. Maybe you're just uh channeling
2: this. Maybe you can hear electromagnetic waves. Maybe you
1: are currently astrally projecting in this room right now, and we just can't sense you.
2: Which we had talked about before, and as you know, if you're listening to the show, the U.S. government did actually spend millions and millions of dollars uh, researching this idea of astral projection, and the Soviet Union spent even more. Uh, Matt, I, it occurs to me that now, before we jump into this, we should tell people uh, that you and I
1: had a pretty interesting experience in this room earlier today. We did. We got to be guest hosts on a show called Stuff to Blow Your Mind because one of those hosts, Julie, is currently out of town. And uh, we had the privilege of speaking with Mr. Robert Lamb, or uh, yes. he's also known as Doctor Anton Jessup.
2: Well, the, there's a there's a passing resemblance between those two, but I believe he would argue they're very different people.
1: Okay, that's probably correct. Doctor
2: Jessup certainly would. Uh, the thing that we talk about with Robert on that show, uh, you know, we'll leave it to you guys to check it out. We don't want to spoil it for you. Uh, but if you are a fan of this show we believe that you will also enjoy
1: stuff to blow your mind. Oh, yes, if you aren't already a fan.
2: Yeah, you probably are.
1: I mean, let's be honest. Oh, yeah, man. They're All a right. lot bigger than us on this audio thing.
2: Oh, yeah, nothing wrong with that, though. Uh I believe in cooperation, not competition. That's right. Which brings me to a series of questions by way of segue here for you, Matt. You ready? All right, let's All right. do it. Do you enjoy
1: games? Uh Yes. I enjoy all kinds of games. I like video games, mm-hmm. I like tabletop games, I like meta games. Mm-hmm. I even like social games, sociological games. <laughs> that's
2: that's true. Uh we went through a phase, this is a little behind the curtain stuff for all our listeners. Uh you and I went through a phase where we pretty much studied body language to to the point
1: of um it's the point of reading people fairly effectively, I would say. And I fought it for a long time. Do you, ben, this is still behind the curtain. Don't, don't look too hard, but Ben showed me a book, uh, and I fought it really hard. I didn't want to read it. I thought it was evil.
2: Oh my gosh. I forgot about it. Yeah. yeah.
1: But then I ended up looking a little more into it and it's, it's pretty terrifying. It's one of those things you can't unknow.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Uh, but the reason that I ask you about games is because, uh, I, you know, I love the fact that you said social games, but it leads me to my next question, which is, do you think that empires can coexist?
1: Well, oh gosh, I guess it depends on how large you want your empire to be. And if your empire truly is an empire, Mm-hmm. Um, I guess if the continents are far enough away, sure. Sure they can. Ah, okay. So if you have like one continent over here, and there's, there's one empire there, one continent way over here separated by lots and lots and lots of seawater, perhaps. Okay. So a buffer of some sort. Oh, yes. Okay. Empires
2: can't coexist together. <laughs> I don't think so. Okay. I, I see what you're saying, and the reason I asked about a game is because today's audio podcast comes to us from our earlier series on uh Soviet activity, right, in Central mm-hmm. Asia.
1: Yeah, all kinds of Soviet activity we've been covering lately. Mm-hmm, yeah. Everything from psychotronics to mm-hmm. attempting to discover Shambhala.
2: Yeah, true story. It's so weird to me still. What we found when we were looking for Shambhala or looking for Soviet activity uh, regarding Shambhala is that there were two camps of people there. Uh, there was one camp of what we can call true believers who really believed that there was uh, Shambhala or Shambhala or whatever uh, somewhere north of India, somewhere in the steppes, and that this land could uh, hold keys to some sort of hidden technology. So it's kind of like the conspiracy theories regarding Atlantis or Lemuria or other fallen Hyperborean type civil,
1: civilizations. And then you've got people who believe Shambhala is more of a uh, a philosophy or a state of mind, and they want to create a place where that state of mind can flourish.
2: Mm-hmm. And additionally, use it as a way of building Support for communism and building support for the Soviet Empire
1: uh, and monarchies, right?
2: For yes, at and monarchies. Here,
1: yeah. At least for at least for Baron Roman von Unberg Stunberg. Uh, however, you, I found out there's more to that name.
2: Yeah, that name is longer. I saw it when you made the video uh, <laughs> and put the whole name in there. Uh, yeah, there's a Wilhelm. Oh in yeah, there. I,
1: that wasn't even the whole name. I put as much as I could fill the bottom of the screen. Yeah, he was very um very
2: old blood. Oh yeah. Aristocracy. So no wonder he, no wonder he wanted to bring monarchies back. He would have been related to so many people. Oh
1: right? yeah, he would have been up there, cream yeah. of the
2: cream. It wasn't exactly um altruism. So no. so what we found when we were looking at this is the, we found the, the, the search for Shambhala, this takes place in the 20s and the 30s, 1920s and 30s, but we stumbled across something much bigger when we were looking at this part. It turns out that the Soviet search for this lost civilization or this spiritual haven uh, was just one strange chapter in a much longer story about something called the great game
4: snag a job is where america goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring with access to over 6 million active hourly workers snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand Temp to hire part-time or full-time you name the position warehouse worker
0: $25 each.
3: Visit LiveNation.com
1: slash concertweek to buy now.
0: That's Livenation.comslash concertweek to buy now.
3: I'm Katia Adler, host of the Global Story. Over the last twenty-five years I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico.
5: Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
2: And of course, your first question is, you know, oh, they invented Tetris back then? Oh, if only. If only. Uh, no, this, uh, the great game is something different. It's the term here is often attributed to a guy named Arthur Connolly. Arthur, uh, worked as an intelligence officer for one of history's most ruthless and, for time, most successful corporations. That would, of course, be the British East India Company.
1: Yes, a corporate intelligence officer.
2: So he's the one who
1: said, it's all a great game. Yes, and there, this great game was played between primarily two uh, empires, really, two huge empires at the time. You're looking at Victorian-era England Mm -hmm. and also the Tsarist Russia, At the Mm -hmm, time. mm -hmm. And they're both vying for power across all of Asia.
2: Yeah. And they're each is trying to establish hegemony over Tibet, Mongolia, Afghanistan, Pakistan, all the stands, all Uh the stands. And we should take a second. Uh, hegemony, uh, is ultimately the control of a region or area, uh, that is beyond State level power. So the United States currently uh, is the the hegemon of North America. Mm-hmm. You know, plays nice with a lot of the other countries, but ultimately decides when the buck goes and where the buck stops. Mm-hmm. As uh, to fall into a platitude. So at this point, we have these two huge empires: England. The British Empire has expanded all over the world. By far, their favorite thing that they have conquered is India. It is the crown jewel, as it was called, of the British Empire. And they want to safeguard this crown jewel because, um, you know, England, collection of islands, excuse me, the British Isles, collection of islands. And so this this smaller nation in terms of landmass had conquered a much larger area and had enormous geopolitical influence because of this. So they want to keep that piece of the pie, but Russia wants something else.
1: Yeah. Russia is just trying to expand, uh, expanding its borders is trying to acquire more and more resources and establish trade routes to mm-hmm. send those resources through um, basically send them all over Russia. Mm-hmm. And um they really just want to maintain their influence over the region. Uh because, you know, India isn't that far from their borders.
2: Right, yeah. So we've got yeah, exactly. We've got Russia expanding, um, trying to essentially annex more nations or at least in incorporate them, and we have England saying, well, how fast is Russia growing here? Because we already called dibs on India, which I know sounds cavalier, especially when we're talking about the deaths of literally millions of people. Oh, yeah. But these were the attitudes at the time. These governments, a lot of the people making the decisions, we have to remember, uh were monarchical. So they were uh removed from, you know, kind of considering the common people of their own countries
1: as people. Well, sure. we we tend to forget sometimes that when you're in a a palace or a boardroom or mm-hmm. just sitting in a, a, a an ivory tower an ivory tower somewhere looking at all of these ideas you the best way to look at them is when make them very small make a small let's say i don't know table uh wooden table mm-hmm. that's the size of Western. <laughs> <clears throat> and uh that's the, that's the size of the world and you look at with little pieces. Okay. Here's where the resources are. Here's where the cities are. We, we want to maintain this area. You can only see it from that high up. If you really want to control it, you have to see it from that high up.
2: Mm-hmm. And this is the nature of the great game. The great game, uh, became popularized in a book by Rudyard Kipling. Uh, he wrote a book called Kim and Kim is about this. British orphan who is orphaned in India and he eventually begins to have adventures as a spy working for uh the British Empire in in the Great Game and that would be of course trying to counter expanding Russian influence there the the Great Game itself is generally seen as starting around 1813 when Russia and Persia signed something called either the Treaty of Gulistan or the Russo-Persian Treaty um and it did a couple things that really set the uh set the stage of the game and one of those was it gave uh Russia control of several key pieces of real estate
1: which would be Azerbaijan, Dagestan and basically eastern Georgia yeah, and that
2: was a pretty nasty blow to England at that time because they had some heavy influence in Persia. You know, they had advisors in the court and stuff. Um, and this expansion, which goes back to the original question I had for you uh, uh, about whether empires can coexist, and if so, how, Uh this question became increasingly important, and you can actually measure on the ground how much more important this question
1: became um yeah, and it's roughly 3000 miles
2: yeah uh at one earlier point the distance between the closest russian and english empire outpost was about 4000 miles uh in a very short amount of time it got to as little as 1000 miles uh the thing that happened was a real life secret war
1: yeah so the interesting thing about this Secret war is that it's not you're not dealing with massive battles. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not you're not dealing with armies that are ready to go to war with one another at any time. Well, you are, but you're not seeing that happen. You're dealing with intrigue. You're dealing with literally secrets and espionage. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, in the dark, it's a war in the dark.
2: I like that phrase. Yeah, we're talking about some of the same people that we mentioned in the video series, right? Uh Barchenko and Rorich, Rorich especially, was functioning as a
1: spy often. That guy is fascinating, by the way. We need to do a whole series on Just him. Just on him? Yeah. Yeah.
2: He impersonated the Dalai Lama. If you haven't seen our episode on this yet, please check out Soviet Search for Shambhala. Uh, okay, so we have got English and Russian agents, as you said, Matt, fighting this war in the dark. They're uh, traveling in disguise as monks and shamans and horse traders. And, you know, keep in mind, this is still kind of in the age of what would be known as Napoleonic warfare. Mm-hmm. Napoleonic warfare is when again, a very isolated person in power said, I should just line these guys up and, you know, get my buddy that I'm probably related to to line his guy, his guys up and we'll sit at the top of our mutual hills and, you know, see how many of them survive. And the- yeah,
1: just march them in lines, just march Marching them in lines and, the city.
2: yeah. And at this time, of course, if we look at a little bit of the military history, you know, the, um, the evolution of firearms also taking place would ultimately mean that Napoleonic tactics were suicidal. Yeah. But no matter what, even before then they were, they were very bloody and people were avoiding an out and out war by trying to subtly garner influence. So, the Russian empires would send somebody to visit the Dalai Lama, uh, and then the British team would send somebody to visit the Emir of Afghanistan and warlords in Mongolia and other leaders of Stans, you know, Emirates and stuff and...
1: And yeah, they would maintain contact openly with, with Moscow and... And, uh, and with London, as though everything's cool, guys, we're, everything's fine. They'll have a meeting. Yeah, yeah. we're going to have a meeting. But as I'm having this meeting, my buddy's over there and he's got the ear of some warlord who's planning yeah. some bad things against you.
2: Mm-hmm. And Russia and England would also, when was necessary, cooperate to stop mutual threats. So the biggest example of this is the uh, cooperation between the British and the Russians uh, during World War II. Which is weird because it makes you think, doesn't it, that this game has been playing for quite a long time. I mean, I know chess games can take a
1: while, but Jesus. Yeah, that's what is, oh my God, that's over a hundred years, 120, 30 years.
2: Yeah. So it's been going on for a while. And that led us to think about how the great game has molded the world in which we live today.
1: So the great game has had effects on Afghanistan, which were I mean, they are they have been catastrophic. Um and it's it's severely limited the possible development of Afghanistan um, because of the Separation Act that's occurred, the coagulation of of power inside that country.
2: Yeah, and uh and that that country was also used as a buffer state too, sort of, because, you know, it's between Russia mm-hmm. and India, or it was at the time. From yeah, and the great battles,
1: the if there ever was a battle between those two powers, that's mm-hmm. where it's going to take place.
2: Mm-hmm. And, uh, those effects, of course, were catastrophic. Uh, the other, uh, the Stans were also influenced Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan as well. Um, because they ultimately were quote-unquote won by the Soviet party, by the Russian side. Mm-hmm. So they remain part of the USSR. Um, you know, they remain part of Russia effectively even after the uh, revolution in 1917. And when they were under this era of Soviet rule, they were still really important from a uh geopolitical stance because – they they had these um massive resources. I think somebody check me if I'm wrong on this, but I think Uzbekistan was known as um one of the breadbaskets of Russia. So they supplied the Soviet Union with with uh, a lot of food and unfortunately because of central planning, a lot of people starved while they were exporting food. Um, yeah. That's yeah.
1: insane. And it it turns out that the resources That are acquired in these areas, uh, when you're in control of those areas end up having a huge impact on what you're able to do, uh, that don't necessarily affect the bottom line of the empire, right? Mm -hmm. Because these are, it's like having extra resources. So, uh, one great example is the, the Eurasian opium fields and they basically gave England the means to peddle drugs to China, um, in what (laughs) it ultimately became the opium wars, but it was basically an extra resource. For them to get more money.
2: Right. Yeah. Because if you think about it, they're not growing opium in the British Isles. They're no. not,
1: uh, they're not. Well, they'd be completely against it. Right.
2: Yeah. It's a not in my backyard kind of right? thing, right? Kind
1: of makes you think about
2: <clears throat> current Afghanistan. Right. Where opium production has skyrocketed. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. S- some of the same opium fields, as a matter of fact. Yep. And that is strange. Uh, the opium wars deserve a podcast all their own. But for now, this quick recap, just a high-level look at the nature of what's going on, brings us to the big question of the day. When When do you think the great game stopped? Or do
1: you think it stopped? Between those two powers, specifically? Uh, I mean, how how could you ever prove that it stopped?
2: <laughs> right? Yeah, that's a good question because it's so much of it was uh waged in a clandestine way and depended upon espionage and,
1: and you're you're still looking at two massive I mean there's they are there are large powers. I don't know if Russia is considered a superpower anymore. I believe they are. I've just read was reading an article about is Russia yeah. will, will Russia become a superpower. Yeah,
2: you probably heard some varying Assessments is probably the most mm-hmm. fair word to use here of Russia's ability. Um, sometimes people will say that the only reason Russia is at the uh, level it is in the UN Security Council is because of World War II, that it's just a legacy from that or that it is a developing nation that's there because it has a stranglehold on gas. And often Weirdly enough, uh, in the United States, uh, conservative politicians uh, like to say that the United States should begin exporting natural gas to Europe as a way of curtailing Russia's influence. It is also fair to say that at this point, those guys are the nicest way you could say it is optimistic It's literally the nicest way. But yeah, so the idea of Russia being a superpower is something that is tremendously important to Russia's long-term strategy, right? And could be threatening, uh, to other countries, but not just the United States, because I think it's obvious, Matt, that you and I both believe the great game continues.
1: I think it absolutely does. And perhaps just a few more players have joined.
2: Oh yeah? Yeah. Who would you, who, who would
1: you say has joined the
2: game? well
1: the chessboard. well certainly the united states um certainly china mhm um just if you look at some of the spying that goes on and now the known spying that the us continues has been and continues to right uh implement um oh yeah as we're as we're uh recording this
2: Angela Merkel the prime minister of germany right was in the news for uh being rejected by the NSA when she asked, Hey, can you guys give me the stuff you stole from my cell phone?
1: Yeah, can I at least see the things the that you've file given? on me. Yeah. yeah.
2: I understand why uh they wouldn't do that, but it's tough to look classy doing that. Yes. Um, going back to going back to this, yeah, the two two of the big new players in the game are China and the United States. Now for a time, China was not able to be a peer-level regional power uh, due to infighting, due to um, the tremendous influence of both the British and the Russian empires. Today, China is ascendant, and one of its big concerns in Eurasia is fortifying its security in Western China and making sure that it has secure access to energy. So this this means petroleum uh, from the Middle East and Central Asia, natural gas, any of those products. Interestingly enough, uh, China is also the world leader in construction of some alternative energy, world leader in building solar.
1: Yeah. Well, and solar is, it. I mean, there is no question solar will be huge. And I don't know how you can ever stop solar power from becoming the next thing just because it's once it passes that threshold of being able to make it cheaply enough. Yeah. Then I mean, it's over. All, it's over. All the it's other energies over. can go take a hike, man. Cause the sun's not going out. That's if it does, we're going out. So
2: that's interesting. We say this now, um, the big, the new Anglo player in the great game is of course, as you said, the United States, there's some strange similarities here because the United States, like the British Empire in the beginning of the Great Game, does not actually have a sovereign territory there. They're interested in establishing a hegemony, uh, hegemony many people would argue, uh, for the purpose of collecting resources and also for the purpose of preventing other threats to that rule. Um, you know, the biggest one would be a lot of people think the biggest one would be either China or Russia, but if you look at the way they're playing the game, Iran is the one is the country in the target in in the in the scope sites.
4: Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over six million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs
0: $25 each.
3: Visit LiveNation.com
1: slash concertweek to buy now.
0: That's Livenation.comslash concertweek to buy now.
3: I'm Katya Adler, host of the Global Story. Over the last twenty-five years I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico.
5: savings products insured by NCUA investment products are not insured not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value
1: yeah um they've got a really big friend in the middle east that you know we have a really big friend in the middle east that we have to protect um israel and uh, iran okay. is there is certainly their biggest they feel that iran is their biggest threat so well, not no. saying that it's making the us yeah. necessarily Uh, do what it's doing but it certainly helps
2: now i think you know i think that the united states is looking at iran for a different reason for a much more pragmatic reason now you know you and i had already talked about this in an earlier show and we're both fairly skeptical i'm even dismissive of people or politicians at least who make Arguments for wars based on ideology it just doesn't cut it. I don't, I don't believe it. I want to see some numbers. And I think there is a number play here in preventing Iran. There's also that very interesting, um, conspiracy theory about petrodollars,
1: right? Oh yeah. And, and that break the, the petrodollar, break the back of uh, the U.S. At least that's what I've been hearing of a financial hegem-
2: uh, hegemony. Mm-hmm. I'm saying the word too often now. Hmm. We know that, we know that the United States, like China, wants to secure access to reliable energy, uh, f- for itself, but also for another player in the game that we'll get to. Um, one of the, let's go to Russia, one of the oldest, longest players in the
1: game. Mm-hmm. Matt,
2: what does Russia want?
1: Well, it definitely wants to reestablish its influence over the rest of the area, um, not just inside Russia, and we can see that happening right now, currently. Don't call it a comeback. Uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, they're they're interested in expanding, um, revitalizing kind of the the old Russian Empire, the I see. part. I mean, not necessarily the Soviet Empire uh, per se, but you know, regaining some of that. Give me back land. my
2: stands, yeah, Uncle Sam. Right now it's you know the uh the US and Russia are at loggerheads over the presence of US military bases in uh in some uh, I think Uzbekistan maybe Kazakhstan as well I can't mm-hmm. remember uh and those are being used to support US operations in Afghanistan and uh additionally as building a, a possibility to wage war with Iran which is unfortunately on the horizon the, um, so that makes sense that Russia wants to gain back its influence and gain back control of the areas that it lost during the fall of the USSR.
1: And I would say it has a, I'm, I'm not uh, an historian. I'm not sure. I don't study this stuff very often. It just would make sense that there are still resources, important resources in those areas, um, that they want to get back. Oh yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, like you said earlier, most of these things are resource-based in some way. Mm-hmm. Um there's a reason you go you send an army into a place where you try and take over a land space and it's not usually because of an ideological reason.
2: Yeah, it's not because you like folk songs or whatever. I'm st- pardon wow. me for sounding so dismissive. Uh speaking of cynicism, there is another very old player in this game. And it's a very old player that a lot of people forget to their detriment. And I don't blame you because it doesn't get reported on the news as often as it
1: should. The corporation, the, the original reason that we even kind of learned about this because of that intelligence officer who was working for a corporation.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, sometimes we might forget that, Uh, energy companies and finance companies or those in concern in the financial sector, uh, can wield enormous interest, uh, enormous influence as well. And in some cases, uh, having some sort of influence is crucial to their survival. You know, we, we forget often that, um, the, the role of oil exploration played a big part in some of what the British Empire did. Uh, when it divided different countries up, you know, in the, in in the period leading up to the modern day, uh, we forget sometimes how dependent other countries can become on loans from, you know, private and semi public private sources like the IMF or the World Bank. And in some cases, uh, these organizations can provide tremendously Necessary resources, you know, better roads, schools, sanitation, all of these things that countries need to order in order to get a chance to develop.
1: As long as the IMF or whoever gets their piece too.
2: As, yeah, as long as the whatever agreements they make are, um, something that they, that they hold up to and that they are allowed to hold up to Mm -hmm. by anything else because. What's interesting when we read about this is that many of the people in the situations here, especially historically, many of the people who were Eurasian elites, you know, llamas or uh emirs and stuff like that, these people learned a very careful balancing act. You know, so you would say one thing to the British to play them off the Russians in order to hopefully make your area of the world a
1: little bit better or
2: at least a little bit less dangerous.
1: It's interesting now the world in which we live where so much is open mm-hmm. or at least able to be captured. Um, as for everything from, uh, a cable that's sent from one country to another, one, Diplomat to another.
2: Oh, I see. Interceptions. Yeah, there can be an
1: interception and now it's open just like what happened with those diplomatic cables that got leaked. Mm -hmm. Um, it shows you exactly what you're talking about where we're, we're playing a game. Well, all, all countries are playing some kind of weird game Mm -hmm. to make everyone think that no, it's cool, man. We're good. (laughs) (laughs) Is
2: it, is it sort of like that game where, um, I don't know if, You listeners did this when you were a kid. We had this game where we would play tag in a library, which couldn't run because you were being watched by teachers. So there were a lot of people just power walking after each other until the eyes of the teachers were off them for a moment, at which point they made mad dashes. I I, never did that. Oh, well, we could try it in the office. (laughs) I don't know who would, who would care. Uh, but, uh, this, this is interesting because, you know, we always like to do a little bit of, uh, further reading, a little bit of stuff to recommend. Um, this whole topic, while it might seem a little bit dry and removed from the average person's life, especially in the United States or in Europe, um, the point of the matter is that people who are in charge of state level decisions, you know, those, the wise old men and women who advise uh, the advertised leader, you know, whether it's a, I don't know, CEO, prime minister, president or whatever. These, uh, the intelligentsia of international affairs very much believes in this concept of a grand game and that uh, Eurasia is ultimately the big either melting pot, opportunity point or point of conflict in in the world going forward. And when I say advisors, uh, I don't mean people that were working in the 1940s. I mean people who were still working much more recently, like Zbigniew Brzezinski, mm-hmm. uh, who wrote a book called The Grand Chessboard, where he argues the same thing. He basically says nothing has changed. People like Henry Kissinger, uh, people like the advisors to Putin, uh, Putin sure. himself –
1: well, so. when you get to that level, I, you have to have an understanding of the history, uh, or else you can't. You you're not allowed. I mean, you can't be here if you don't have a a vast understanding of the history of what you are doing.
2: Mm-hmm. And sometimes that history does get lost in ideology. It's true. It's it's very true. Uh but this goes back to our this goes back to our question because if you think about it, if you think back to the early days of the of the great game, we had um. We had a corporate power working with a state power to achieve the British Empire. And you know, if we're being honest, state and corporate powers have always historically intermingled, you know, um, the separation of the, yeah, the separation of a corporation from a, you know, a family or a monarchy as an official state power
1: is, a little more recent than we would like to believe. Uh, for me it's of uh, the way I visualize it, it's the the corporate side is the funding powers, the the money powers to an extent and then the army or the warring power is with the state at least the way I'm viewing it currently. And okay. you, they have to because you know somebody has all the money. Sometimes it's the monarch that has, you know, the treasure trove room Mm-hmm. Uh, but usually it's the wealth of your nation, um, which isn't always, not always controlled by the, the state power.
2: Yeah. No, I know it sounds incredibly cynical to talk this way about this because one of the questions that would pop up would be, you know, ideally, why can these states not have their independence? Why? can they not be able to democratically elect their leaders in real elections, not some kind of kangaroo court election, and why wouldn't they be able to pursue their own interests that would benefit them rather than a larger regional power? Um, I totally agree. I I think they should be able to do that. But the point of the matter is that often they end up being client states or uh being – Proxy, the scenes of proxy wars. Uh, I hope that this doesn't happen again, but it leads us to the question, Matt. Do you think that empires can coexist?
1: I don't know, dude. (laughs) (laughs) I I feel as though one day there will be no such thing as, and well, there, maybe there will be one empire. Who knows? Maybe it'll be Death Star like and. Yeah. It's gonna be really intense, cloaked dudes that can wield some kind of supernatural power. I would be in. Really, I mean, you're yeah, down for I'd that?
2: Sacrifice democracy for a superpower? Are you kidding?
1: Well, if it feels like we have to head that way, as as it as much as it pains me to say that, it feels like a global power is inevitable. Hmm. Or else. You mean yeah. a single global power. Yeah, like a, uh, like a freaky empire, a freaky one empire thing. See, I think
2: that could happen, but it couldn't be permanent. I, I could see a, um I could see something like 1984's political situation existing where there are three huge states that have always been at war with each other or always been
1: allied with one another. But if you, if you play the great game effectively, you could convince yeah, let's, let's say there, there are three, right? Uh. In 1984. In 1984. <laughs> I'm just extrapolating here. But if you're playing the great game effectively enough, then you could convince, if you're, uh, one, number one, you could convince after defeating two and three, uh, kind of below board or through espionage or however you're doing it, you could convince the people who live in two and three that two and three still exist and everything's okay. Oh, I and, see. uh, nothing has changed. When really the power is with the with only one.
2: So so it's simple, just lie to billions of people and never get caught.
1: Yeah, well, it <laughs> takes you to Aldous Huxley's yeah uh, world, and when you combine 1984 and the Brave New World, then you start looking getting close to what our world looks like. A brave new 1984. Yeah,
2: dude, <laughs> that's kind of cool, man. You're uh, blowing
1: my mind. Well, what do you think, Ben? I think all
2: right. This is going to sound a little bit fringe. I'm sure that a person much smarter than me has figured out this theory. This is just my two cents, entirely speculation, okay? So in the beginning, we had weaving being humanity. Mm-hmm. We had the tribe, and the tribe was something that happened due to survival. We found that it was, in the beginning especially, it was necessary to have other people to help you to survive, Right. So we set this precedent from the tribe arrived the religion and the religion said there is a reason for us existing other than just to survive here. And we are different to other people. And we or they uh, deserve something good or bad. Mm-hmm. So the tribe started for survival. The religion gave a reason And the state advanced a method. And the method of the state is that there are certain explicit rules that are pragmatic. We're not telling you necessarily what's going to happen when you die, or we're not telling you about the intangible spiritual things, but we are telling you that if you steal an elephant, you are going to jail. Because that is not what makes society work. So let's, let's put in these rules that allow something like a super tribe to exist, Mm -hmm. you know? So then we went from the state to the corporation. Mm -hmm. And what the corporation says is, uh, still kind of left open to question, but in my, in my opinion, what will ultimately become the biggest player in the great game will be some sort of British East India thing, some sort of private corporation. I could easily see in our lifetimes is the worst part. I could easily see in our lifetimes, some sort of state or area of the world that is transparently and obviously controlled by a corporation. And I don't mean some sort of sticky corruption charge. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, people like, want
1: to live there.
2: Yeah. I mean, like, uh, you know, Luxembourg presented by Google. No, I know? think it's just
1: going to be a Google stand or a Google. I mean, yeah, there, that's going to exist. That will exist before you and I die. And,
2: and here's the thing. Here's the thing. Depending on what corp, which corporation it is or how it works out, it might be better than the alternative. It might actually be better to live in a Google stand as terrible. As that sounds now, we have to remember that the human race and, and trying to work with itself is this continual evolution. So I think that soon, um, and when I say soon, I mean the grand scheme of things, uh, the corporation, which would be the fourth step, will uh, supersede the state.
1: Yeah, but what comes after the corporation, man? I
2: don't know. I I just want to go to space. I'm gonna be yes. honest with you. I just I want to go to space. I'm not gonna sell my soul for a ticket. I don't really believe in too much of that anyway. But just
1: in case, I'm not gonna sell it. You can metaphorically sell your soul.
2: You metaphorically. Do you remember that Simpsons episode where Bart sold his soul and he couldn't fog the glass? Yeah. And the automatic door wouldn't open for him. <laughs> yeah. Man, that got to me functioned
1: on soul. Isn't that interesting? Yeah.
2: More than a sermon that got to me. I thought those doors are convenient.
1: What will I do? Oh, the Simpsons teaching, teaching people like you and I, how the world works and how morality works.
2: And let's toss it to you listeners. We hope that you enjoyed this episode and we want to know what you think. Uh What, what do you think will happen in these countries that we in the West hear so little about? Uh, who, if anyone, do you think will eventually control Eurasia? Uh, will somebody win the great game? Uh, here's a good one. Is it possible to win the great game or does it just
1: continue? That's great. And, uh, be sure to, to go on Facebook and give us a, a little message. Um, tell us what you think about this stuff. You can find us. We're conspiracy stuff. You can find us on Twitter. We're at conspiracy stuff. Make sure you check out our old episode called The Long Deception, which talks about the Soviet Union and whether or not it actually collapsed. Really interesting stuff. Um, if you don't like social media and you don't want to watch our videos and you just want to tell us something, you can always email us. We are Conspiracy at discovery.com
0: For more on this topic and other unexplained phenomena, visit testtube.com conspiracystuff. You can also get in touch on Twitter at the handle at conspiracystuff.
4: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast
0: is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God.